The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about a marine reserve in Biscayne Bay, Florida. My guest is Caroline McLaughlin. She is the Biscayne Program Analyst with the National Park Conservation Association. Welcome, Caroline. Hi, Rob. How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. Hot. Hot. So you're down there in Florida, and uh, what's it like? Oh, summer is approaching, so it's really hot down here. Actually, really dry, too, for this time of year. We're about three weeks into the rainy season, but it's pretty bone dry, actually. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. We all hear about dry humidity, but uh, being dry is probably not good for the ecosystem, right? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Hopefully, we'll get some rain soon. Well, if anyone's got any rain this summer, send it down there or to California. That'll be good. (laughs) Thanks. Probably California needs it more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you might be closer, though. It might be easier. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so tell us about the National Park Conservation Association. NPCA is America's leading voice for our national parks. We have about 1 million members and supporters, and our mission is to protect and enhance America's incredible system of national parks for present and future generations. We were established only three years after the National Park Service in 2019, and actually 2016 is the National Park Service centennial when it will turn 100 years old. Great. So... You're going to get to celebrate 100 years of parks? Yeah, 100 years of uh, national parks, and then in 2019, 100 years of MPCA. So in 2016, to celebrate the National Park Service's centennial, we're launching a campaign called Find Your Voice. And it's an initiative to really educate and engage people about national parks and to really bring up the new national park advocates to uh, ensure that America's favorite places continue to thrive into the next century. Well, that'll be fun. How can we uh, know what, when to go and what to do? Well, we'll be hosting a series of events in and near national parks really around the country for the next year. And these events are community service projects to advocacy trainings, a whole host of different things. And so you can visit our website to find out more information and find one of these events near you. Oh, great. Um, so tell us about Biscayne National Park. Biscayne National Park is one of our nation's largest marine parks, and it's located right outside one of the largest metropolitan areas in the country, uh, the city of Miami. 
So it's really unique. It provides this kind of unique underwater world that people really wouldn't have the opportunity to discover without Biscayne National Park. It's part of the third longest barrier reef tract in the world and hosts some of the only living coral reefs in the continent of the United States. Wow, third longest. So the Great Barrier is the first longest. Yes, and, and then, then I think the else. Mesoamerican Reef Tract in Central America, I believe, and then the Florida, the Florida Reef Tract is number three. Holy smokes. Now, I first yeah. got to know it by driving out to Biscayne, what was it, Biscayne Island there. And, but that's the very northern tip, right, of the park? Uh, Key Biscayne. Key Biscayne Key is Biscayne, actually yeah. a bit north of the boundaries of the park, but it's, yeah, it's within Biscayne Bay, but Biscayne National Park protects the southern portion of the bay. Wow. So how did you first come to know about it? Well, I um, studied for my undergraduate degree at the University of Miami, and while I was there, I was volunteering with um, a group, a student shark research group, and we would go out into Biscayne Bay at night out of the national parks, and we'd kind of go off of Elliott Key, one of the islands in the park, and we'd basically hunt for juvenile sharks in the mangroves at night, and so we'd catch these kind of baby sharks, take them back to the boat, measure them, tag them, and release them. And so it was actually, you know, kind of terrifying, but amazing all at once, and it just kind of couldn't believe this place existed right in the backyard of Miami. Yeah, like how big is a baby shark? Uh, they can be, I mean, they can be maybe three feet smaller, so I don't really Holy know smokes. when they're considered so, baby or, you know, juvenile versus adult, but... I mean, the ones you were working with, yeah. Probably yeah. on average, maybe two feet or so. Yeah, you got to watch out for your fingers. Yeah, <laughs> you do. <laughs> so are you with the Fighting Ibises, too? I am a University of Miami alumni, yes. We <laughs> are the Hurricanes, but Ibises are mascots. Oh, that's right, that's right. The Hurricanes is a team. And yeah, the Ibises are the birds you always see around there. Yeah. Yes. Um, so tell us more about uh, Biscayne National Park. Uh, the park covers about 270 square miles, and 95% of the park is water. It protects the, the longest stretch of mangrove ecosystem on Florida's east coast, and it's home to a whole host of different habitats. It can have mangrove, shore, mangrove shorelines, um, seagrass beds, coral reefs, and a unique estuarine environment in the bay. It's also home to about 42 different keys or islands. Um, and right on the, it's really unique because right directly on the shoreline of Biscayne National Park is Turkey Point Power Plant. It's the sixth largest power plant in the country, and it has five different power generating units, two of which are nuclear. And there's actually a wow. to expand the plant um, in the future, adding two new nuclear units, which would make it one of the largest nuclear power plants in the country, directly on the shorelines of one of our national parks. So as you can imagine, yeah, that I kind of introduces a whole host of management issues um, well, yeah, there's a whole bunch of issues there because the Park Service can't oppose a power plant, but they certainly can call for responsible cooling of the water before it's put back in, or what are some of the threats you see? Well, there's a, a couple of different issues. Currently, there's issues, like you said, with the cooling water. Um, Turkey Point actually has a series of cooling canals, which I think are unique, really, in the world. So they have these canals dug, and they use... So they transport the water through the canals as a mechanism to cool them. But recently there's been issues with the temperature and salinity within the cooling canals, and this has led to kind of a series of fairly severe algal blooms. And in order to deal with this, they need to take 
fresh water from surrounding ecosystems to address the conditions in the canals, which, of course, is a concern when that water is needed for ecosystem restoration in Biscayne Bay and Biscayne National Park. Mm. Yeah, you know, ecosystem management is really complicated, and this is an example where they have to address the question before they can get authorized probably to be putting water into Biscayne Bay. Absolutely. Well, they don't put the water directly into Biscayne Bay, but because they're canals and in Florida we have this kind of porous limestone geology, there's direct connections between surface water and groundwater. So when that cooling water goes into the groundwater, you can imagine there would be connections between the groundwater underneath the park. Yes. Yeah, there it is. more complicated again because of that. Yes, um, absolutely. Porous limestone that you guys are living on there. <laughs> um, okay, where were we? We got taken off our discussion a bit. That was really interesting. Uh, you've got a whole history, a rich history of about Biscayne Bay, Florida, that goes back in time, right? Yeah, Biscayne National Park has a lot of really unique uh, culture and historical heritage. I mean, there's stories of Spanish exploration, of pirates, of smuggling, and shipwrecks. And something really unique um, that exists within Biscayne National Park that's a new project is something called the Maritime Heritage Trail. It's the only underwater archaeological trail in the entire national park system, and it covers six different shipwrecks, allowing visitors, you know, snorkelers and scuba divers to follow this trail of shipwrecks and it has underwater placards that describe the site, describe some of their history and some of the resources there. So it's really a unique project within the park that tells the story of some of the heritage of Biscayne National Park. That is really cool. And people can snorkel in? Yes. Yes, they can. We were actually yeah. out the first day that they placed the placards in the water. We happened to be out um, in Biscayne snorkeling and looking at some of the resources there. And so we saw this first placard literally being dropped into the water at the first site. So that was a really neat experience. So the first placards out there were off. I believe they're all in. They've all been installed. Oh, they're all in. Oh, great. Yep, come down and visit. Yeah, I know. I'll wait till the snow builds up here, and then I'll come down. <laughs> um, <laughs> then my friends will hate me because I'm there then. Uh, so, so what is the economic importance of uh, Biscayne Bay? So Biscayne National Park Biscayne is National not Park, only... Sorry. Oh, that's fine. It's not only preserves these really incredible ecological resources, but it's a significant economic driver for surrounding areas. And you have to think that healthy coral reefs and healthy fish are really important for surrounding economic um, activities. So there's a whole variety of economic and recreational activities that occur in the parks, such as fishing, scuba diving, snorkeling, and boating. And there's about half a million visitors that came to this game last year who spent about $32 million and supported nearly 460 jobs in the local area. And as a whole, the entire Florida coral reef ecosystem is worth about $6 billion annually and supports about 150,000 wow. jobs. So you can see that it's very important when considering kind of the management and sustainability of these resources. It's not only about kind of ecological significance. You also have to think about how the surrounding economy really depends on the health of these resources. And, and really, national parks in general are huge economic generators. They're visited by about 300 million visitors each year, and they support about $30 billion in economic activity, really comparable to the revenue of some Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, wow. So tell us about what are the animals 
the, what are some of the animal visitors you've got coming through the park there? Or what might we see if I go to the park? Um, there's all sorts. Um, there's wading birds, nesting birds, sea turtles, sharks, manatees, dolphins, some of my favorites. Um, Biscayne, because of its kind of location between temperate and tropical environments, has a really high level of biodiversity. Also because it has you know terrestrial, estuarine, and marine ecosystems, you have a lot of different kinds of wildlife that live in the park. Um, there's also a whole host of threatened and endangered species. The American crocodile is really interesting. The, uh, the greater Everglades ecosystem, which includes Biscayne Bay and Biscayne National Park, is the only place in the world where you'll find crocodiles and alligators living together. And that's a good thing? Yeah. <laughs> it is unless you're in the water with them, but yes, it's a great thing. It's really neat. Like, go have um, it. Okay. Crocodiles are different from alligators because they can live in brackish or salty waters, meaning that you'll see them in bays, ponds, and coves. And actually, there's been um, crocodiles found further inland in the canals of Florida. We have a really kind of intensive system and series of canals, so they've been finding them a little bit further inland recently. They're finding crocodiles further inland, you're saying? A bit, yeah, and they're finding a lot more of them yeah. down in the Florida Keys, which is actually a good thing if you're looking at the management, more numbers coming back. Um, so more sightings oh, is actually a positive thing, yeah. Yes, that's wonderful. Now, are crocodiles known for killing people recently? No, not that I've heard of. Not no. the American crocodile. It would be big news in the park if someone got nipped by a crocodile, I think. That would be, oh. that would be huge, so not to my yeah. knowledge. That's reassuring, because us here in New England is thinking, why do people live in Florida because of crocodiles down there? People down there say, why do we live up here because of snowstorms? And so we go back exactly. and forth. But, you, know, <laughs> you seem to have a better deal of it, because the crocodiles aren't biting you as much as the snow bites us. So. Exactly. Uh, so we're, we're happy down here with our pythons <laughs> and crocodiles. <laughs> but the pythons aren't in the, the Biscayne Park, are they? No, they're not. The pythons are um, an invasive species that kind of overtake in the Everglades. But no, they're not found they're, in, they're in the Everglades. Park. Well, to go to Biscayne Park, you can assure your family that there are no pythons. And um, don't go wandering off from parents <laughs> for fear of crocodiles or something. Um, so you've got a lot of other neat stuff in there. Um, how about, um, uh, we were talking earlier about small tooth sawfish. Yeah, small tooth sawfishes. The sawfish, these are one of my favorite animals. They're very, very rare. Um, they're endangered. And they're really a cool animal. They're part of a family of rays. They kind of look like sharks, but they're actually rays. And they have this long, flattened rostrum or nose that actually looks like a saw because it has lines of teeth covering it. Um, populations today are only about, you know, between 1% and 5% of what they were historically, and most of them are found in South Florida. Um, recent studies, though, have something really cool. I mean, typically they reproduce uh, male-female, but they've shown studies that, that these species are capable of virgin birth, essentially where they reproduce independently. I mean, there's no dads. So that's something mm. that's really neat, especially considering that there's such a small number of them left. Yeah. Do you think there's like 100 in the national park there? I'm not sure of the numbers actually offhand. Yeah. But 100 seems like a lot. Yeah, it's a big park, so that's not very many small tooth sawfish. So they're kind of flattened top to bottom. They're they're more flat top to bottom than a mako shark or something. 
and that's why yeah, they're more ray-like. Like, kind of, yeah, they, they look like sharks, and the, the fins kind of look like shark fins, but they do yeah. um, tend to stay along the bottom. They're kind of flatter, like rays. Yeah. Um, what's, what's some of the more common sharks? Um, you have, like, nurse sharks, sharks play a bit. Probably most people would be nurse sharks. They have um, lemon sharks, sharks yeah. bonnet heads. Bonnet heads kind of look like DD hammerheads. Um, hammerhead sharks. Um, I would imagine tiger sharks. They really happen in the Keys. But, but out, if you're out snorkeling or diving, really no need to worry at all. The most no. the, the shark you're most likely to see is a, a nurse shark, and they're very docile and kind of stay along the bottom. Lounging around the bottom there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, no. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Um, oh, so um, but what's fun is, is to go snorkeling on the coral reefs. And um, I always get a kick over seeing parrotfish around there. So tell us a bit about the coral reefs. Coral reefs, I mean, that's, that's also my favorite place to go in the parks is to kind of get in the water and see some of the coral reefs there. Coral reefs are really cradles of biodiversity. They have some of the highest levels of biodiversity on the planet, and they're home to about one quarter of all marine life which is really incredible if you think about it. Um, mm. And parrotfish, yeah. you mentioned, are really a neat species. They're important grazers. So they actually eat algae, this macroalgae, off of the reef. And if they weren't there, this algae would kind of cover and smother the coral if left unchecked. So the populations of parrotfish are really important to the health of coral reefs. And you've got a pretty good population there? I believe so. Yeah, otherwise you'd see really shaggy coral reefs and stuff. Mm-hmm, exactly. And then uh, one of my favorite ones is the elkhorn coral. Yeah. Uh, remind us El- what that looked like and stuff. Elkhorn coral is really neat. It's a type of threatened coral that grows within um, Biscayne National Park, and it's found all, all throughout the Caribbean. And it's a really an amazing type of coral. It's very fast-growing and large, and they have branches that actually can reach up to between around six and a half feet in size which is huge for coral. They kind of look like elk antlers. And they're one of the most important types of corals in the Caribbean in terms of providing different kinds of fish habitat. Unfortunately, they've been you know, diminishing in numbers, and they're really threatened by diseases, coral bleaching, water pollution, and damage caused by human activities. You mean like Biscayne? boats bump into them? I'm sorry? You mean like boats bump into them? Yeah, when you have collision with boats, with with anchors, even collision with kind of fishing gear and lines can make corals more susceptible to diseases. And so this isn't unique to elkhorns, it's all corals. So um, there's really a whole host of threats that are impacting them. But within Biscayne National Park, um, there's this really unique stand of elkhorn coral. I mean, I've been diving in a lot of different places, and I've never seen anything quite like they have in Biscayne. There's just these huge, intact stands of elkhorn on the bottom, and you really kind of feel like you're on another planet. Um, we wow. were out snorkeling last summer, and it's kind of a bittersweet story, and this is the first time I ever saw ever saw these stands at Biscayne National Park. And unfortunately, we found out that, you know, maybe a month or two after we were in the water there, there was a really severe coral bleaching event, and about 96% of those corals died. So we were oh, no. like the, last per- the last people to see them. Yeah, yeah, which is really, really devastating when you think about those numbers. That is, yeah, that's very sobering. Um, and so it speaks to how we have to manage better, right? Yeah, Absolutely. 
I mean, bleaching is really a huge problem for corals worldwide. Um, when corals get stressed by low or high temperatures, and typically high temperatures, but actually cold water can do the same thing, corals expel the algae that live inside them, these zooxanthellae. And these are the algae that give coral their color, and they act as, as the primary food source for corals. So once they kind of kick out the algae, corals appear white. And once the, once the algae is gone, these corals become really stressed, and they're more susceptible to diseases. And, you know, if the stress caused by the bleaching isn't too severe or the bleaching event doesn't last that long, there's a chance for recovery. But if the algae loss is prolonged and the stress continues, the corals will eventually die. Yeah. So there's much to do in Biscayne National Park. And I'm gonna, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to learn more about a marine reserve for Biscayne National Park. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back talking with Carolyn McLaughlin, she 
She's the Biscayne Program Analyst with the National Park Conservation Association. Hi, Carolyn. Hey, Rob. Yeah, we were, um, we've been talking about all the wonderful animals and the, the wonderful aspects of Biscayne National Park. And um, there are a number of challenges that are facing the park, and all of these, um, most of them seem to be pointing toward a need for a marine reserve in Biscayne National Park. So let's talk, tell me a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, we were talking a lot about, you know, the important fish species, marine species, coral reef habitat within the park. And unfortunately, over the past 50 years or so, these resources have been in a dramatic state of decline, and specifically looking at the coral reefs and the fish populations. The park was once flourishing with native species like black grouper, but black grouper are now at presently about 1% of its historical abundance. Now a lot of, you know, formerly common fish species are much less frequently seen, and when they are seen, they're typically undersized. Visitors to our national parks really expect to see the highest quality conditions when they visit, you know, the underwater equivalent of Yellowstone National Park or the Grand Canyon. Unfortunately, that just isn't the case in Biscayne National Park. You know, and I think if someone were, for example, chopping down all the redwood trees in our national park, there would really be a public outcry. And the same should be true here in Biscayne, where our iconic coral reefs and marine life are on the verge of collapse in some instances. Yeah, that's kind of alarming, and it's too bad that, you know, the marine life is not as apparent as bison on the plains or, as you said, redwood trees. That would be much more obvious. Um, What's been happening that you think causing this? Well, there's a number of different factors that have kind of impacted the health of the corals and the fisheries. I mean, we were talking about before warming oceans, um, water pollution from development and construction activities, um, marine debris, or like fishing gear, hurricanes. But a lot of the problems have stemmed from overuse and overfishing. So looking at South Florida, there's just been a huge explosion in population down here over the past 50 years or so. Um, for example, if you think about that, more people, more fishing boats, right? And so the number of recreational fishing mm. vessels in South Florida has grown by about 750% between 1954 wow. and 2014. Over 50 and years then, is a huge increase, yeah. Exactly. Well, that's, you know, that's a double-edged sword because the national park system gets their funding on how much public access they provide, how many Americans come into the park. So on the one hand, it's great to have, you know, a park next to a big urban area and to um, experience more people. But, um, and that's half of their mission, I guess. And the other half of their mission is, is conservation. So how do, I don't know, how do we reconcile that? Exactly. That's a, that's a challenge that the National Park Service faces in making management decisions. They have this dual mandate. They have to uphold both conservation and recreation, and at times these can come into conflict. And so in Biscayne National Park, again, like you said, public access is very important. Recreational fishing opportunities are extremely important, and these will not be going away. But what the Park Service is trying to do is to figure out how to manage these activities and how to manage visitor access in a way that it doesn't impact the sustainability and the health of the resources within the park. So other parks have put up um, pegs underwater where you can tie on so you don't throw an anchor over because anchors are probably not a good thing in your park. They have something um, similar in this game throughout the park, uh, mooring buoys. 
So Language. exactly yeah. like you said, you tie up to them. You don't have to drop anchor. There's less of a chance of any damage from the anchors to the coral reefs and seabeds. Do you have seagrasses in Biscayne Park? Yeah, extensive, extensive seagrass meadows. And yeah. these are really important habitat types. And they also hold sediment down to control erosion and things like that. Um, but when you have boats running through there, a lot of times this is really shallow water. I think the average depth of the water within the bay itself is about six feet. And so people typically can frequently um, scar the seagrass beds, basically run aground and churn up some of these really important seagrass habitats. Yeah, I've seen it when they drop an anchor and then the anchor chain rotates, you know, a 20-foot circle or 20-foot radius or 40-foot diameter, you know, ball patch into the grasses because they didn't use the, the buoys, like you said. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of safe, conscientious boaters out there that follow the rules and regulations and have minimal impacts in the parks. But again, it's looking at the negative impacts that some of these activities have and figuring out how to conserve the resources while also providing these opportunities. And you're challenged by technology, right? Yeah, a lot of it, it's not only the number of fishing boats, but it's technology. I mean, think about the new things that are out there. There's fish finders, there's GPS, there's computers, there's new types of fishing gear. And so it's not only that there's more people, it's that we're better at catching the fish. Yeah, that's Yeah, just to give but an example of what has changed since. I mean, for every 20 fish people caught back in 1960, only one fish is caught today. And we have about That's 70. not very good fishing there. No. <laughs> No, it's, it's not, not a reflection on technology, is it? What's that a reflection of? Uh, it sounds like there's no more fish. Well, that's that's part of the problem. Is there there are fish left, but again, the fish you see are much less abundant and frequently undersized. Yeah. I mean, typically they're smaller than regulations allow for them to be caught, for them to be caught. So it's it's a huge problem. So I mean, looking at black grouper, the size yeah. is. So if you look at just black grouper, for instance, the size of black grouper today is about 40% of what it was 70 years ago. Mm. But again, there's fewer fish and they're getting smaller. Something needs to be done. Exactly. And, Something needs to be done. You know, the, most of the species there apparently are, are overfished. And, and the environment is degrading, so it's not a good situation for those fish. Um, uh, so how much of the reefs are actually healthy? So looking at the reefs, only about 6% of the reefs in Biscayne are still alive. And this is due to, you know, a number of factors I mentioned before, fishing gear, warming waters, and the absence of a stable kind of ecological food web. If you look at the impacts of fishing or the number of fish on the ecosystem, it's very important that it's not just that you look at these things holistically. You look at it kind of as an entire ecosystem. So it's not just the number of fish. It's not just the number of corals or the health of the seagrass beds or whatnot. You have to look at these things as a whole. And if the health of one is in decline, it's invariably going to impact the health of another part of the ecosystem. Yeah. It's all interacted, like interrelated like that. Exactly. And, man. So, we need a general management plan 
that addresses all, it's comprehensive. And so to get there, you have to do a planning process. So tell me about that. Exactly. So Biscayne National Park is at the end of its general management planning process. And so a general management plan is basically a, a framework. It's a blueprint for park management that should really guide how the park is managed for the next 20 years or so. And so Biscayne, after they, the commission a study back in 1999 or 2000 to look at the health of the resources, and what they found was, again, what we were talking about before, that the resources have been severely degraded and that some were even on the verge of collapse. And so the Park Service realized that they had to do something. Strong action needed to be taken in order to protect the resources of the Skane National Park. So in drafting this general management plan, it's been about a 15-year process overall, which is a very long period of time for something like this. And it's included a whole host of public workshops, um, public engagement, opportunities for people to provide input into it, and also a really careful examination of some science-based research. And I know that they've been taking new science and new data into account kind of throughout this process. And so what they came up with essentially is a marine reserve. And they thought that a marine reserve is really one of the best, fastest, and most effective ways to protect the coral reef ecosystems in Biscayne National Park. Wow, yeah. Um, So... What about the reserve? So a marine reserve oh, wait, wait, is... Wait, 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 let's back up a minute. There must have been significant uh, conflicting groups that um, were slowing down, you know, because all of them want more science, right? Exactly. Or more data? Well, kind of there. You're, you're absolutely right when you say that there's been some conflict and opposition and, you know, differences of opinion in regards to the general management plan, which is why part of the reason why it's taken 15 years to come to a conclusion. Um, The Park Service released the first draft of the plan back in 2011, and it contained a marine reserve, basically no fishing area, to protect some of the coral reef ecosystems in the park. And when this came out, groups were upset. um, The fishing groups, the boating industry, um, the state of Florida kind of all felt that this was a really dramatic measure and this was going too far and that before they went to, before the Park Service resorted to such a drastic um, mechanism or management action, they should really try less restrictive options first. But defending the uh, position of the National Park Service, this is a dramatic action, but at the same time, the conditions within this game necessitate dramatic direct action and immediate action. And so implementing or suggesting a marine reserve was really in line with the kind of dramatic decline in the resources of the park. Yes. The decline is so dramatic that you need to take a greater step than just a bird sanctuary or something, I guess. Exactly. And, of course, there's other fisheries management tools that will be implemented in conjunction with the marine reserves, but this is one very important tool among many that needs to be put into place in order to protect the game's resources. So the whole park won't be a marine reserve, right? No, no, not at all. Not at all. So like we were talking about before, Biscayne is about 95% water, and only 6% of the park will be a marine reserve. So it leaves 94% of the rest of the park open. And so, and how do they find again... That 6%? I'm sorry? 
How do they find 6%? 6%, the area of the marine reserve was determined by a team of scientists that work for the National Park Service, and I know they consulted with NOAA and other agencies on a specific area. It covers about 30% of some of the most the park's most sensitive coral reef tract. And so that's well, how that's they came good. up so with the big the area. Of the coral reef. Yeah. Exactly. So 6% of the park, 30% of the reef. And again, it really would leave ample recreational fishing opportunities available throughout the rest of the park. Oh, absolutely. But it is protecting a significant variety of the ecosystems important to you guys. Yes. Yes, definitely. And does it include that the uh, elk horn you saw damaged? That, that I don't believe it includes that specific stand that we saw, but it definitely right. does include other stands of elkhorn coral. And right. So, like, like we were saying Same before, kind of habitat. Same essential habitat. Like, just, yeah. Exactly. Essential coral reef habitat. And I see they located it on the outer edge of the park. Is that because yes. of boundary effects and stuff? It's located on the eastern edge of the park, um, a few miles east of um, Elliott Key and some of those keys that kind of run down the, the center of the park there. Um, this is really exciting that they're moving toward a um, park and uh, a reserve, I mean. And uh, we're going to take a short break and learn more about the benefits of building a marine reserve in Biscayne National Park. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Carolyn uh, McLaughlin of the Biscayne. She's the Biscayne Program Analyst with the National Park Conservation Association. Carolyn, how can people learn more about your work? Um, You can learn more about our work by visiting our website, npca.org. And also, if you want to receive kind of alerts, updates, or opportunities for action items, you can sign up for our action alerts at mpca.org slash get dash involved slash action dash center. And, uh, or you can Google MPCA Take Action in case you didn't get that. Yeah. Say that again. You could Google what? MPCA Take Action. Take Action, MPCA. Well, the National Park Conservation Association is a really sterling great group. They were good to fly me to Washington to walk on the hill and talk about great waters and help to protect uh, our shores from illegal unreported fishing and uh, to to stop uh, offshore drilling off of the Atlantic Ocean that they're worried about and stuff. So it's, it's really fabulous group that you are working with there, the National Park Conservation Association. Uh, we're talking about a marine reserve for um, Biscayne, National Park. And Caroline, what are some of the benefits of having a reserve? Um, There are many. So marine reserves are essentially no fishing areas that prohibit the the extraction of any kind of natural resources. So boating, swimming, diving, snorkeling, all of these activities are still allowed within the reserves, but you can't fish. So marine reserves offer really quick and effective ways to protect the coral reef ecosystem at Biscayne National Park. They can protect coral reefs, the structures, and provide a refuge for fish populations and actually can create better fishing opportunities outside of the reserve. So if you have kind of more fish, larger fish than the reserve, clearly they're not going to stay within the boundaries. So they can spill over outside of the reserve. And in fact, some of the best fishing spots in the world are located just on the boundary of the marine reserves. Mm. So marine reserves also can reduce impacts from marine debris and damage to reef structures that can be caused by boat groundings and anchoring. And something else that's really important to Biscayne National Park in creating this marine reserve is providing an enhanced visitor experience. They want to provide an area in Biscayne where snorkelers and scuba divers have the opportunity to experience a vibrant coral reef ecosystem. Um, a vibrant coral reef that is subject to fewer impacts from fishing and the extraction of resources. So really yeah, creating a marine reserve. <laughs> exactly. Go ahead. Um, it, it will basically just help bring back more fish to Florida and help to improve the health of the park's coral reefs. Um, these, this is really a tried and true method that has been tried in different ecosystems all over the world. I mean, there's decades of scientific research supporting their ability to work quickly. And just um, 70 miles back of Key West, kind of in the neighborhood of Biscayne, in Dry Tortugas, marine reserves there have shown very significant successes in just a few years. After just five years, studies showed 
significant increases in the size and abundance of once overfished species. They also did an economic study that showed that there were no economic losses reported by commercial or recreational fishermen in the area. Wow, that's counterintuitive. And that's yeah. because of the spillover effect or perhaps. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of a lot of factors that play into that, but exactly. Marine reserves can really help protect fishing opportunities for the future. By providing this refuge area, you're going to ensure that there's more healthier, larger fish in other areas. Bravo. You would one would hope that if this you know, one third of the coral reef portion that's a marine reserve, you know, does do well, that um, people will allow it to grow, you know, north and south over some of the other portions of coral reef or something. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Hopefully it won't take you 15 years to figure that one out. <laughs> we'll see. I know there's going to be a very <laughs> intensive uh, research and monitoring plan going into place along with the marine reserve. And so they're going to have, you know, scientists in there testing, researching, and kind of coming up with these numbers and showing what the impacts of the reserve are. Right. Monitoring very carefully. But we have the experience of the uh, Keys National Park down there where there was huge resistance to a uh, reserve. And now the fishermen are all proud of it. Yeah, actually, there was a lot of, you're right, I mean, the uh, marine reserves that went in in the Dry Tortugas, there was one in the Dry Tortugas National Park and one in the Portuguese National Marine Sanctuary, and there was a huge uproar before that happened, and people were concerned about, you know, fishing opportunities and access and whatnot, and now a lot of people, after seeing these benefits and seeing the results of research, have gotten on board. Uh, we work quite closely with um, an angler who lives in a community very close to the Kane National Park, and he was against the idea of marine reserves at first when they were looking at putting one in dry tortugas, and now he's one of our most vocal advocates in support of the marine reserve in this game. That's great. Experience does make a difference when you can see something working instead of just worried about the change. Exactly. And you were saying earlier that there was significant pushback uh, for having uh, this reserve set up a few, like three or four years ago. Yeah, so we talked about we talked a little bit about the planning process. Oh yeah, uh, what happened? Yeah. What happened was the Park Service when they released the initial or the first draft of this plan in 2011. Like I said, there was a great amount of backlash and opposition. And in 2012, uh, members of Congress actually called a hearing on it to talk about public access in national parks. And so, you know, the Park Service was brought in. Um, the angling advocate I, I actually spoke of went and spoke on behalf of the Marine Reserve there. But they really, you know, asked a lot of tough questions about this issue. So after that happened, the National Park Service kind of went back, um, sat down with the state of Florida, and came up with two new alternatives for management, two different ways of kind of protecting the coral reefs that didn't involve a marine reserve. And what happened was they released these two new alternatives in 2013, and and let me tell you, everybody hated them. But at least the one that was promoted at first, or the preferred alternative at first, I mean, fishermen hated them, the conservationists hated them, I mean, everybody hated it. So that was a sign that they really had to look elsewhere. So they were also considering kind of a lottery system, and that was a system I was talking about that people just 
I couldn't understand. It was a permitting system based on a lottery that was very confusing and complicated and expensive to manage. So the National Park Service was also looking at a seasonal closure. So what about we have this area similar to the Marine Reserve area, and it's closed to fishing during the summer. Well, what happens is when that when this occurs, when you have a seasonal closure of fisheries, the first day of that open season, people are out there in mass. I mean, they're out there in huge numbers. Mm. And what happens is something called the derby effect. Because there's such high pressure at the end of the closed season, it really can just get rid of any benefits that were there from having the closure. And so these seasonal closures have not been shown to provide great benefits to fish populations. So after listening to all these comments and looking at all the science that, you know, informs how to manage these types of ecosystems, the Park Service decided, okay, we've looked at different things, we've talked to the state, we've talked to the public, and we believe a marine reserve is still the best way to go. And so about maybe three weeks ago or so, on June 5th, I believe, the Park Service released the final general management plan, which does contain a marine reserve. Bravo. Yeah, really exciting. This is really exciting. This is something we've supported for over 15 years. But it's not law yet. So what has to happen now? Now what has to happen is, so basically after the final plan is released, there's a 30-day holding period, for lack of a better word. They have to wait 30 days, see if there's any new significant groundbreaking information um, that was not included in the plan. And then after this 30, 30 days, they can, the Park Service will sign a record of decision. Now, after that, they have to go through a rulemaking process and hold additional public meetings, ultimately to institute a regulation that will formally establish the Marine Reserve. And that's expected to happen sometime in 2016. And the regulation is approved by Congress? No, it's, it's regulation, so it would be by the administration. It does not take um, legislation. It's it's a regulation. Right. So uh, the there's a couple different pathways they can go go down to get this regulation on the books, but it does not have to go through Congress. So, what can people do to help create this marine reserve? Um, well, if you are in Florida, you can contact your members of Congress and tell them you support a marine reserve in Biscayne. And you can also contact the National Park Service and thank them for their dedication and their leadership in creating this marine reserve. I mean, we've had a lot of support for from our members and supporters, from different members of the community for this marine reserve throughout the entire process. Over 90% public support um, was there for a no-fishing marine reserve zone. I think throughout the process, the Park Service received about 43,000 pieces of correspondence on this issue. Um, and so the yeah, local county, Miami-Dade County, has passed a resolution in support of the Marine Reserve. We also got a letter in support of the Reserve from some world-renowned marine experts, including Dr. Sylvia Earle, um, Jean-Michel Cousteau, and Dr. Jeremy Jackson, who's an expert on coral reefs in the Caribbean. Um, also interesting is the, there's also fishermen who support the Reserve. There's oh, a group of, of local fishing experts down here um, these are world record holding fishermen and boating captains. I mean, really well respected in the fishing community, and they completely understand the importance of, mar- of a marine reserve. And so, what they did was they put a presentation together explaining the benefits, explaining the science, just trying to dispel a lot of misinformation and educate people about 
what exactly a marine reserve does. And they went around to a lot of local fishing groups and chapters and clubs in Miami to educate people and to educate other fishermen about marine well, reserves. So I think, yeah, it's, they've done some really incredible work. Well, they're right. You know, the whole bonefish industry offshore needs to have healthy coral reefs on the shore as nurseries or whatever. So, you know, re- protecting the coral reefs is, helps the whole ecosystem, as you said earlier. That's, that's brilliant. It does, and it really protects the future of fishing. You know, and if yeah. you want to have healthy, ample fishing opportunities in the future, you have to look at conservation. And you have to yeah. look at how your actions now will impact what is there in the future. And so I think the decision to implement a marine reserve in Biscayne National Park will help protect the coral reef ecosystems and will help bring more fish back to Florida. Carolyn, this is excellent. The Ocean River Institute really supports your work, and we're setting up on our website uh, a way that you can send a letter to your uh, national representative in Washington uh, in support of the uh, Biscayne National Park. And, um, of course, we always invite you to sign up for our e-alerts as well. But uh, I, I do uh, I want to thank you um, Caroline, for telling us about all this, and tell us again how people can uh, keep in touch with you. Uh, You can sign up on our website. You can sign up for our e-action alerts. If you just Google NPCA, take action, it will bring you to our website. You can enter your email and get updates not only about Biscayne National Park, but about other issues facing our national parks all around the country. Excellent. Um, so thank you for telling us about the need for marine reserves in Biscayne National Park in Florida. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this. Well, it's been a most interesting show, and uh, yeah, yeah, thank you very much. And for everyone who's thanks. been listening, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, until next time, um, please uh, try to be a better steward of our natural resources. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.